Let's turn together to the letter of James we've been looking at for some weeks and to chapter 4. Two separate passages this morning, the one beginning at chapter 4 verse 13, which says, now listen, and then following on chapter 5 verse 1, which also says, now listen, and we've just prayed that we will indeed listen to what the Lord has to say. Sometimes I know the right thing to do, and I do it. And then I feel pleased with myself, and I find pride is lurking in my heart, and I think, oh, drat. It's not just what we do, but it's the motive behind it. Pride can be a very powerful thing. Called pride can be a good thing. We may take a just pride in something we've achieved, or created out of wood and covered in gold gilt, or we've worked hard for. But we also know how pride can be a terrible negative thing. It seems that pride may have been the great sin behind the downfall of Satan, wanting to be like God, equal with God. Adam and Eve were proud before God in the sense they believed they knew better. And the Pharaoh in Egypt boasted of his power over God's people Israel, over the Egyptian gods, over Yahweh, with a great sense of pride. Satan was cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve cast out of Eden, and Pharaoh's army was drowned. As Mary tells us in Luke chapter 2, God has brought down the rulers from their thrones, scattered those who are proud in their thoughts, but lifted up the humble. James chapter 4, 7 says this. Sorry, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. I wonder if God counts you and I this morning among the proud or the humble? Are we those that need to be brought down or those that God can lift up? James warns us in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, of the dangers of pride, in particular the pride of presuming that our plans will come to pass. The pride of assuming that our plans will come to pass. Let's read verses 13 to 16 of James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. I wonder if anyone knows what the Latin 
Deo volente means. Deo volente. God willing. That's right. I remember when I was a young man, <laughs> an older generation would always say DV when they said something about the future. Anyone else remember that? They would say, I'll see you next week, DV. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and that's where it comes from, uh, this passage here, uh, and also from Proverbs 27, which says, Do not boast about tomorrow. You do not what, know what tomorrow may bring. They would always qualify their plans for the future by saying DV, Deo Valente, God willing. There's a certain humility in that, don't you think? God willing. Now let's be clear that in this passage, James isn't saying don't make plans for the future. He is saying don't make plans apart from God. He is saying don't plan the future with presumption that we know what will happen. We don't. That we can ensure what will happen. We can't. To exclude God from our planning for the future is a form of pride. I will do this. I will do that. I am able to bring about whatever I say. And such boastful presumption is not only arrogant pride, but also, James says, it's foolish for two reasons. The first one in verse 14. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. It is foolish to be presumption because of our ignorance. We do not know. We are ignorant about tomorrow. We're ignorant about this afternoon. It is foolish to be presumption. We need to remember our ignorance about the future. Only God knows about tomorrow. And it's also foolish for another reason, also in verse 14, because of our frailty. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The early morning mist is there, but as soon as the sun rises, it disappears. And so do we. Life is brief. We are not masters of our lives or of our future. In the blink of an eye, everything can change. Have you known that in your own life? In the blink of an eye, everything can change. Maybe for good. <laughs> it may be for bad. It may be accident, illness, misfortune, our own foolishness. It may be what our enemies do to us. Or as Jesus reminds us uh, in Luke chapter 12, it may be death itself that changes everything. Let me read this passage from Luke 12, verse 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have to storm. I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. 
This very night, your life will be demanded from you. We are not masters of our lives or our futures. In the blink of an eye, everything can change. And such pride and presumption that we are masters about our future, James says in verse 16, is actually evil. It is evil. Why? For such a life is a life that is lived with arrogant disregard for God. It is an evil way to live with such presumption and pride and disregard for God. So, how should we go about planning our future and looking to the future? What should our attitude about the future be? Well, James tells us in verse 15. (coughs) Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Do you notice, if it's the Lord's will, we will live? (laughs) Our lives are not a right They are a gift and they are dependent upon God. The breath that you are taking now is a gift from God. It is not yours by right. You could try this sometime. Take a breath and say, thank you, Lord. Take another breath and say, thank you, Lord. I don't suggest you do that throughout your whole life. (laughs) Wouldn't do us any harm to do it from time to time, to remember with humility that the life we have today, let alone tomorrow, is the gift of God. Are you making plans at the moment? I imagine we all are one way or the other. I certainly am. Let's do so in God's presence. You know what I mean by that? Let's do so in God's presence. Let's seek God's wisdom. That's what James says in chapter 1, doesn't it? He knows. Let's be guided by his word. Let's be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit in our lives. So let's not bring our plans to God. Let's make our plans with God. Let's not bring our plans to God so much as make our plans with God. Carefully and prayerfully. And then pursue them with all our hearts, of course. But never forget, we do not know the future. We cannot determine what will happen or will will not happen. Only God is sovereign, all-knowing and almighty. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 19, where he just says this, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And again in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Paul put his plans for the future and his hopes for the future under the sovereignty of God. Into the hands of God. And we may do that with confidence. For his hands are pierced hands. They are loving hands. They are hands that hold us and love us and want the best for us. 
Now, Paul, in his many letters, says many things about his plans for the future, but he doesn't always say, God willing. He doesn't need to. His attitude is always, God is willing, whether he says it or not. And we make many plans, and maybe it wouldn't do any harm from time to time to say DV, or if you prefer, God willing. But whether we do or not, what matters is the attitude of heart, that when we make our plans, we make them with God, and we submit them to God and trust him for the outcome. An attitude of humility before God and trust in God. Now, before we look at the second passage, now listen, chapter 5, which is about wealth and riches, I thought I'd just take this opportunity while thinking about the future to read something uh, I wrote in response to a number of questions perhaps the most popular question I've ever been asked, and I was asked many times when I came here uh, first of all. Um, The question is, does God have a plan for my life? That's the question. And this sheet that I'm about to read uh, is uh, out there, so if you want to take a copy of it, a number of people asked for it, I gave it for them, but I've got copies of it. I just thought I'd read it uh, to you now. Uh, The verse that mostly comes to mind, of course, does God have a plan for my life, is what verse in Jeremiah? 29 verse 11. Um, I would suggest that's unfortunate. Ooh, I'm not popular now. I know the plans I have for you. Who does the you refer to? Well, it refers to Israel as a nation. I know the plans I have for my people. God is saying, wonderful plans, great plans. But he's not saying to the individual Israelite, I know the plans I have for you by two camels, not three. Well, he's not saying that. He's saying to God's people, I have a great purpose and plan for you. Um, So, something to think about. Does God have a plan for my life? Yes and no. Oh, great answer. God doesn't have a particular and detailed plan for our lives, but our li- uh, for our lives. But just as God has an overall plan for the nation of Israel, whom he called his son, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, namely to bless them and bring them into the promised land, so in the New Testament God has an overall plan both for his church, the bride or body of Christ, and for each of his children's lives. Namely, that we should be blessed and become like Jesus. This plan will be wonderfully fulfilled when we are finally brought into his glorious presence in heaven. We shall see him and be like him. Our lives are a gift from God and he wants us to enjoy them to the full, to have a great life. Making choices is part and parcel of everyone's life. Small choices, red jumper or blue, (laughs) Big choices, university, college, work, relationships, money. Should we live in Hackbridge or Crawley? Big questions. Our God is not a control freak, but a Father who loves us and has given us many freedoms, including the freedom to choose, to make our own decisions, be they good, indifferent or bad. We are free. Along with this freedom comes the responsibility to choose wisely and to accept the consequences of our decisions, good, bad, or indifferent. God's desire is that we become great 
chooses. A sign of maturity. Though God has left us free to make our own decisions, He has not left us alone or without help. He is our Father God and He cares about us. He's always with us and available for us to turn to for help, wisdom and wisdom. In addition, God has given us commands and guidelines, which if we heed, will help us make good choices in life, especially when the big decisions need to be made. The Bible offers us much help for decision-making, the most important of which is the command to love. Reflecting on love can often help us to decide what the best thing to do might be. To love God will mean that we seek to obey him. Has he told us to do or not to do certain things? To love God also means to love ourselves. Not do those things that will harm ourselves, but choosing those things that are good for us. To love our neighbour and our enemies, not seeking revenge or doing harm, but where possible, doing good to all. So always try and work out what the way of love may be. God also helps us through his word, which is a light to our path. Such light includes not neglecting our families, when possible, to care for them. Such light includes not being idle, discovering and, if possible, using the gifts that God has given to you. Thinking how God has made you. Search your heart and ask yourself, what do you like to do? What are you good at? What delights you? Such light includes not forgetting to search our hearts for our motives, good and bad. Knowing what things have been forbidden to us. Asking God for wisdom. It's often wise to seek advice from others, especially those more experienced in life and mature in the faith. Not making big decisions in a hurry or when you're very tired and emotional. Remember, the Bible encourages to focus more on what sort of people we are rather than what we do. After all, we are human beings before we are human doings. None of the above, of course, means that God may not ask us to do something particular. After all, he is Lord. God may or may not speak a word, but it's always good to walk closely with Jesus, read his word regularly so that we can hear and recognize his voice when he speaks. Of course, he will never ask us to do something that is contrary to what is said in the Scriptures. Sometimes we may look back on the decisions we've made and feel they were bad decisions. We may be right, and God may agree with us. They were bad. The good news is that whatever we may have done and wherever we find ourselves today, God still loves us. He is always with us, and we can turn to him for forgiveness, if needed, and wisdom to try and make sure that our next step along life's journey is a better one. God is sovereign, and nothing we can do in life can prevent our Father God's wonderful and loving plan from being fulfilled. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. One day we shall see Jesus 
and be like him. That is God's great plan and purpose for his church and for all of his children. I know I have the plans I have for you, plans for good, not ill, plans to be like Jesus and one day be with Jesus. Praise be to God. If you want a copy of that, there's one out there to peruse. If that raises more questions for you and you want to talk about that, I'm sure there are many folk in the church who will do that. I'd certainly be happy to do that. So we've been thinking about chapter 4, 13 to 16, about the future and our need to make plans with God, submit them to God and not be full of proud, pride and boasting, confident in God but with humility. We're going to look now at our second passage, which is chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and we'll look at this a little more briefly. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay to the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. James may be addressing any rich person, or he may be addressing rich Christians in particular. The question I have, is he addressing me? You may have the same question. Well, if you and I were sat in a cafe in Mayfair, and we looked around at the cars, the clothes, the jewellery and the watches, we may not feel very rich by comparison. On the other hand, if we were sat in a cafe on the outskirts of Glasgow or in a favela in Brazil, we may feel differently about how rich we are. James does not condemn wealth at all here, but the misuse and abuse of great riches and the power that so often goes along with wealth. In this, James follows the steps of many of the Old Testament prophets who also warmed with great, colourful, powerful language such as this about the judgment day and the wrath of God that is coming to judge those who are rich and misuse their, sorry, upon the judgment of those who misuse their riches and misuse their power. Paying or failing to pay wages or the right wage. Those that take advantage of slave labour. Those that rig financial markets. We know the list. And great pride is so easy, easily follows on from great wealth. 
It's a great temptation when you're financially well off to forget about God, the true source of all we have. Think that we got it by ourselves alone. It's a great temptation to forget God will one day judge each one of us for what we have and the use we make of it and the way that we treat others, especially those less fortunate than ourselves. There is a judgment day coming. We will reap what we sow. And did you notice in verse 5 the delicious irony of James's words? Let me read it. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The rich can be in danger of acting like a big bully turkey. You see where this is going? A big bully turkey who dominates the flock uh, of turkeys around them, taking more than their fair share out of the trough so that others go without. And this bully turkey grows plump and he's proud of being plump. And then Christmas Day comes. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it awful? Isn't it a warning for us all? There is a judgment day coming and we will reap what we have sown. I'm just going to close with three questions that I believe this passage raises for us all. And we would need to ponder, perhaps not this morning, but I'll leave them with you. In verse 3, James highlights the problem of hoarding wealth. Not having wealth, but hoarding it. And because it's hoarding that it corrodes and the moths are eaten, it's just sat there. Beware hoarding wealth. And this is not a challenge for us individually, and perhaps as a church as well. Proverbs 6, verse 6, commends the ant for being wise, for storing food in good times, to provide in times of hardship. But when does sensible saving and storing become sinful hoarding? It's a question to ponder. When does sensible saving and storing become sinful hoarding? So verse 3, beware hoarding wealth. Verse 4, beware injustice or unjust business practice in particular. They failed to pay the right wages or any wages at all. Now we may or may not employ people, but we support businesses that do. If they are unjust in how they handle their employers, employees, are we complicit in their exploitation? of the poor and the powerless. Beware unjust business practice or supporting those that are unjust in their dealings with others. And then the third question, beware hoarding wealth, verse 3, beware unjust uh, practice, verse 4, and verse 5, beware luxury. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. 
when does living comfortably, or indeed living well, tip over into luxury and self-indulgence? Perhaps we should note that James doesn't seem to be referring to the occasional luxury or self-indulgence. He's speaking to those who have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence as a way of life. In fact, their lives are consumed. Their very being for living is luxury and self-indulgence. So I'm not sure James is referring to the occasional luxury. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Makes you think though, doesn't it? When does living comfortably, living well, tip over into luxury and self-indulgence? Beware hoarding wealth. Beware unjust practice or supporting those that do. And beware luxury and self-indulgence, especially as a way of life. Just for a moment's quiet. Then I'm going to give the last words to Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 19. A moment's quiet, then I'll close with these verses from Matthew 6, verse 19. Beware hoarding wealth, beware unjust practice, beware living in luxury and self-indulgence. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Amen.